Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite mild-mannered historians to go to war with history, sometimes in a very uncivil manner. The podcast where our academics take up their musket, keep their powder dry, and fight for the divine rights of truth and research. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm still here treading water alone as my loyal co-host is off exploring the British retreat across Crete. I do hope you're enjoying yourself, Kyle. But this week, dear listener, we're going back to the turbulent 17th century, a time when many would think that civil war and plague is the best on offer. And guiding us on our quest through this wider conflict than we think it is, is historian and author Dr. Kirstine McKenzie. Kirstine, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, delightful to be here. I can't wait to talk about the wars of the three kingdoms rather than the English (laughs) Civil War. Giving a little bit of a hint there. Now, you're another one who approached us when your particular rage was actually left in the comments of one of our rages of the day. So as I'm fairly new to you and your work, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got where you are? Well, I'm an academic historian. I graduated with a PhD in 2008 from the University of Aberdeen. And my PhD was looking at the civil wars and the Commonwealth and Tectorate from the point of view of the Scottish Covenanters. And I ended up turning the whole model of the English Civil War stroke Wars of the Three Kingdoms upside down because of their perspective was clearly different from the English perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's what my PhD was on. And that's now been published into a book called The Sunling Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and the Cromwellian Union, 1643 to 1663. And it's published by Routledge. So if you're if it is your thing and you are interested in the Scottish Covenanters, um, please do give it a look. So setting up aside, and I can tell you're you're kind of itching to get off this this off your chest because you've mentioned it a number of times in just the <laughs> intro. So the the important history rage question. We'll dive right into this, shall we? What is the one thing, Kirsten, that you wish everybody would just get over? 
It's making the distinction between the English Civil War and the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and using both terms correctly and in the right context. The amount of times people use the English Civil War to refer to the whole conflict that took place in Britain and Ireland between 1638 and 1653 is something that really actually does bug me quite a bit. So, okay, so I'll dive in then first with, and I'm English, you know, don't hold it against me. It was an accident of birth. (laughs) You know, and I, I went through school. I didn't pay a lot of attention in school in history, which is why I became a historian when I was like 40 rather than when I was 16. Um, however, I've been brought up in that English in educational environment. What's wrong with the term English Civil War? There, I've said it. Well, there's nothing wrong with the term per se. If you're talking about the conflict in England that took place between 1642 and 1649 between the Royalists and the English Parliamentarians, that's absolutely fine. I don't have a problem with that at all. Okay. So, so that's, that's fine. In fact, the English Civil War is a perfectly legitimate term, but it's only one of multiple conflicts that had taken place in Britain during this time, and Ireland as well. Don't forget Ireland, very important. Um, But before I start on this rant, because I will start to rant. Good. What I want to make clear is this is not English bashing. I I was brought up in Norfolk, so I I spent my childhood in England. So if there are any English listeners out there thinking I'm going to go on a sort of English bashing rant, I'm not. As I say, I have no problem with the term the English Civil War if it's used in its proper English context between 1642 and 1649. However, I have a problem when people use that term to describe the whole conflict that uh, took place throughout Britain and Ireland between 1638 and 1653. Right. So this is a wider period of history than the, than the term English Civil War. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. What, what I would say is, is that what has to be recognised from the start was that James I, if we go back to 1603, and I know I'm going before the Civil War, but basically when James I inherited the thrones of Britain and Ireland, he was already king, he was already king of Scotland. So what happened was Elizabeth yeah. I died in 1603, he inherited the throne, And when he did that, he brought together Scotland, Ireland and England under one crown. And, of course, the Principality of Wales is attached to England. So that's part of it as well. So effectively, from 1603 to 1707, the Stuarts are ruling four very distinct nations with their own customs, cultures, laws, um, their own um, their own national sort of outlooks and their own experiences. So for example, you've got Scotland, who at this during this time is still an independent country. It's got its own sovereign parliament. Yeah. It's had a, had the Stuart monarchy since 1371. And it's got its own privy council. Now the difference is post 1603 is that James I is down in London. So the, the Parliament and the Privy Council in Scotland lack direct oversight, and it's what we call an absentee monarchy. And that's actually very key to understanding the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. That's how the coven, Covenanters mm-hmm. managed to rise up mm-hmm. sort of against the monarchy, because the monarchy is down in London. Charles I has no control. 
So that's important to the to the overall story. England has its own parliament, and it's uh, it's got a House of Commons elected, and it's also got a hereditary House of Lords. It's also got its own Privy Council, and again, it's fully independent from Scotland. So they're two separate sort of countries under the one crown. And then you've got Ireland. Now, Ireland is, uh, again, it's got its own parliament. It's under the English crown, but it has its own parliament. It has its own privy council in Dublin, and it runs its own affairs. Then you've got Wales, which, of course, is attached to the English parliament and has members sitting in the English parliament. But the, the people of Wales speak Welsh, and they have their own aristocracy, and they intermarry with each other. So you've essentially got four kingdoms that are very different to each other, have their own histories, customs and laws. And even in the case of Ireland and Wales and parts of Scottish Highlands, they don't speak English. They speak, well, obviously in Ireland they speak Irish, in Wales they speak Welsh, and, and, and in the Highlands they speak Scottish Gaelic. So you're dealing with a very multicultural, linguistical complex set of islands and also on top of that you've got the religious factor you've got Ireland that's Catholic and you've got England that's Protestant and you've got Wales that's very Catholic as well and in the Scottish Highlands Catholicism is still a major force so you've got these factors that push and pull the kingdoms together and the only thing that's keeping them together is the crown the fact that that James I and his successors, which includes Charles I, are ruling these four disparate nations. Now, the problem arises that with these four kingdoms, with different religions, different languages, different outlooks, customs and laws, they're inevitably going to clash. They're not all going to go the same direction. They're not all wanting to go in the same direction. So what happens? Well, the majority of Stuart kings recognise this and handled this very, very well. Unfortunately, Charles I didn't handle it very well, and all these sort of different conflict points come together, and it results in a civil war um, that rages throughout the Three Stuart Kingdoms. But my problem is, with, with this situation, is that people use the term English civil war, and it has to be recognised that Stuart monarchy is ruling more than just England. But in order to peel the term English Civil War back and to understand why we shouldn't use it, we should also understand where it came from. So this is the historiography. This is the boring bit. Um, In order for us to understand the term English Civil War, we have to understand where it came from. And in the 19th century, historians become professional. They, They become university professors. They do it as a job. And at this time, there were many British historians who were into the civil wars and doing research into the civil wars. Uh, But at this time, Britain had a united parliament in London. It also was seen as a parliament that was an example to the rest of the world. You have to remember that this was the time of the British Empire. So, of course, it's the time when they're sort of promoting democracy, mm-hmm. if you like, abroad, and, and Westminster is the mother of all parliaments. There's also the, the idea that, that 
with what they call Whig historiography, which is essentially what the English Civil War is, where the term comes from, is that somehow progress is measured in relation to a march towards democracy, a march towards mature political institutions, and that somehow Westminster is the shining light that is civilising the rest of the world in terms of democracy and manners and ideals and, and things like this. And this is what's promoted in the historiography. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said that history is written with reference to current times. As in any mm. historian who writes a history, and we'll come back to this with the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, writes it as a reflection of their own times. And this is very much where the term English Civil War comes from. It is very much a reflection of the 19th century and the priorities of the time and empire and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's where it comes from. That's its origins. However, not all historians of that time were what you would say Anglo-centric completely. We have a, a major historian who's basically the godfather of all histories of the Civil War. It's called Samuel Rawson Gardner. And he wrote an amazing Three Kingdoms account of the Civil Wars. However, what he he did, and this is very much a reflection of his own time, so I'm not, you know, criticizing him in any way. I actually think he was an amazing historian, is that he viewed, for example, Cromwell's conquest of Scotland and Cromwell's uh, abolition of the Scottish Parliament and pulling the Scots into an English Parliament as progress. It wasn't seen as a bad thing. The abolition of Scotland's sovereignty wasn't seen as a bad thing. It was seen as a marker on the road to Britain's rise to being a democracy. Um, the same with the execution of Charles I. Mm. And that wasn't seen as a heinous crime by the likes of Gardner. It was seen as a positive moment in history whereby Parliament became the dominant feature of the Constitution and not the monarchy. So there's this, as I say, this march towards democracy is this part of this Anglo-centric sort of term English Civil War, and, and that's where it comes from. Okay, so going along this line of why we should use the term Wars of the Three Kingdoms, I mean, you've spelled out the general ideas behind it there, but, you know, in terms of detail, you know, how does this term kind of come about? Yeah, so the term the wars, wars of the Three Kingdoms is a sort of more recent phenomenon. It came out of the, the 1990s or the late 80s when the USSR was breaking up, Yugoslavia was breaking up, and you had devolution in Scotland and mm -hmm. Northern Ireland, Wales, and you know across Britain. And it forced historians to look at the conflict in a completely different way. As I say, it goes back to what I said earlier about how current times influence how people see historical events. So what happened was there was an immense outpouring of new scholarship on this subject. And the term, the English Civil War, was starting to be, I wouldn't say pushed aside, but the Wars of the Three Kingdoms as a term was becoming more and more popular. People were taking a more you know, Wars of the Three Kingdoms view, taking the holistic view of Scotland, Wales, England and Ireland and looking at the interconnections between 
all different countries during the war between 1637 and uh, 1653 and trying to make sense of the events in national contexts within these wider intranational contexts. And the man who was behind this was a man called John Pocock, and he wrote a very uh, a good number of essays on this subject, saying that we should create what's called a new British history. And that is that we should look at, you know, Britain and Ireland from a holistic perspective and look at the interactions between the different countries to, to reassess um, the history of these islands. And if you don't mind, I'm going to quote him here. Yeah. And he says, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms was in fact three wars uh, originating independently if interconnectedly, differing in political character. And he goes on and he continues to state, as soon as one looks at it in that way, it is a revolution in perspectives. And one sees the first civil war as purely an English term appropriate to English conditions. So what he's saying is, is that viewing the conflict as the wars of the three kingdoms rather than the English civil war allows us to have new perspectives. So that's why I'm very, very keen on the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, because it injects fresh blood into a, an old debate. And it, it, it brings about new perspectives on what we would assume in a strictly English context are events that we take for granted as going this way or being that way or happening this way or that way. By looking at it at a Three Kingdoms level, we see things in a completely different light, and it, it is an extremely useful exercise to do in, in that sense. And I'm going to give you three examples. Yeah. So for those of you who are familiar with the English Civil War, these events will, will be extremely familiar to you. So you've got the opening of the Long Parliament in 1640. Now, if you look at the sort of Anglo-centric English Civil War histories of this particular event, um, such as Morris, Morris Ashley's English Civil War, which is a very fine text, by the way. So if you are into the English Civil War and you don't know where to start, that is a good place to start, is Morris Ashley's book on the English Civil War. However, he does attempt to look at Scotland and Ireland as well. But what happens is Scotland and Ireland and the events there are kind of background noise until you get to the opening of the Long Parliament in 1640. And then all of a sudden, it's like the restoration of English parliamentary liberties. And this is very Whiggish, Anglo-centric history. It's all about Westminster and this march towards democracy. Um, however, when you look at it from a Three Kingdoms perspective, you actually see what I would consider the true nature of what is going on, which is that the reason why the Long Parliament came into being was because Charles I had finished a war with the Scottish Covenanters, the Second Bishop's War, but he was in negotiations with them for a peace settlement. And the Scottish Covenanters, as part of that peace settlement, put pressure on King Charles I to open an English parliament. Now, many of your listeners would say, well, what business is it of theirs? You know, they've got, the, you know, they're Scottish Covenanters, they're dealing with the civil war up there, which has already been raging for four years by that point, or, or three years by that point. 
what is it any business of theirs? And the truth of the matter is, is that the Scottish Covenanters and John Pym's English Puritans in the English Parliament, who were all opposed to Charles I, had been talking to each other for at least 10 years. This was actually a coordinated Anglo-Scottish alliance against the monarchy. And so you can see when you look at it from a Three Kingdoms perspective, how these events change. You know, the Scottish Covenanters were instrumental in the opening of the Long Parliament, which is called the Long Parliament because it existed throughout the Civil War and was dissolved by Cromwell in April 1653. So this parliament is a major parliament in the history of the Civil War. Um, So that's why um, I think it's important to acknowledge the role of the Scottish Covenanters here and why it's important to view the conflict from a Three Kingdoms perspective. The next, the next event that I'd like to put in a Three Kingdoms context is the Battle of Naseby in 1645. Usually, in the sort of English Civil War narrative of the Civil Wars, it's Cromwell's victory, the New Model Army's victory, it is the King's army gets destroyed at Naseby, and we're sort of in the English Civil War narrative, this is the rise of Cromwell again, the New Model Army. And this rise continues and continues and continues mm-hmm. till it becomes Lord Protector. It's one of these, regarded as one of these key moments in the Civil War where the English Parliament eventually wins the Civil War or the English Civil War. However, in Scotland, something completely different is happening. The Royalists are actually gaining the upper hand. They're gaining the upper hand so much that by August 1645, just eight weeks later, Montrose crushes the Covenanters at the Battle of Kilsyth. Um, It was such a crushing defeat that a lot of the Covenanters started fleeing across the border into England, scared about what was to come. Montrose, seeing that Charles I was in trouble in England, had plans to invade England. He had plans to come with his army into England. However, luckily, for the English Parliament and for Oliver Cromwell's reputation, that invasion never happened, and it didn't. Ha- and it didn't happen because the Covenanters met Montrose at the border at Philippi and destroyed his army. Now I can imagine your listeners going, "Well, so what? You know, Montrose <laughs> didn't invade, so you know it's it's an argument that you know it's not point in having you know." Cromwell's on this trajectory to greatness and, you know, the what ifs don't matter. But what I'm going to say to you is, what if Montrose had crossed the border into England? The whole trajectory of the uh, English Civil War would have been different. The whole trajectory of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms would have been different. Now, I'm not saying that there would be a royalist victory, because to be honest with you, Charles I's royalist armies were very, very weak. But I do think it would have taken the edge off of Cromwell's victory at the the Battle of Naseby. So ironically for the Covenanters, although they despised Cromwell a lot, they actually helped him by blocking Montrose's invasion of England. And when you see it like that, you don't assume that Cromwell's rise is inevitable. You don't see it as providential, which... 
believe it or not, a lot of English Civil War narratives do. They tend to follow Cromwell's line of argument that Cromwell did believe that he was guided by God, that he was one of the godly minority, if you like, and that he was destined for greatness. Whereas if you view it in this wider context, you realise how fragile Cromwell's victory at Nisby could have actually been if Montrose had crossed that border. So it's what I'm trying to encourage here is to break this well-versed trajectory of the rise of Cromwell after the Battle of Nisby and essentially say that it wasn't a fait accompli. You know, things could have been very, very different. The third and final example uh, I would like to put in a Three Kingdoms context is the execution of uh, King Charles I. Now, this is one of the most momentous events in English history, if not British history. The execution of a monarch, it hadn't happened in Europe before. Okay, we're used to the French Revolution and the guillotine, you know, 1789 and all that. But this was the first time a monarch had been executed that way in public and had been put on trial and executed by its own subjects. So it was a momentous event. Now, in the sort of English Civil War narrative, Anglo-centric narrative, Charles is portrayed as this obstructive figure who won't accept a peace settlement, who's very awkward, who's very tricky to deal with. And Cromwell and the English army at the end of their tether, so they decide to execute him. Okay, I know I'm going through a lot of, <laughs> going past a lot of historical detail here, but that's essentially what happens. They grow so frustrated that the only option that they can see moving forward for England is by executing the monarch. And they put Charles I on trial and they execute him uh, at the banqueting house in Whitehall on 30th January 1649. Now, usually English Civil War narratives justify this, as I've said before, because it's a step on the road to parliamentary supremacy and democracy. It also takes the Cromwell narrative that Charles I had started another civil war in 1648, so the execution was justified. One of the major justifications by the English army was uh, that Charles was a man of blood. And the reason why they called him a man of blood was because he'd started what they call in England the Second Civil War, and it caused more bloodshed. And they could foresee that this was going to continue and continue and continue. So the only option they had was to, as they sought, to execute him. Now, that fine in a sort of English Civil War context. But the question I want to ask you when we widen it to the Three Kingdoms context is, what about the Irish and the Scots? Did they not get a say? Because Charles I was also their monarch. What happened? Mm -hmm. what, what was their reaction? So what happened was that the, the Scot Scottish Covenanters and the Royalists were united in their anger towards what they saw was a heinous crime and was what was the murder of their sovereign. Because you have to remember that Charles I is not just King of England, he's King of Britain. He's also Scotland's sovereign. Cromwell did not consult the Covenanters. He did not go, oh, would you mind if I executed Charles I? That's not how it worked with Cromwell. Cromwell knew they would say no, because the Covenanters had signed up to their covenant. And in the, that covenant that the Covenanters signed, they said that they would have respect for the person and the office of the king and that that would never be touched. Mm. Cromwell is breaking the covenant of which he signed in 1643 by executing the monarch. 
So the, the Scottish Covenanters and the Scottish Royals are united in their anger with this. Also as well, the Irish, they protest this as well, and they see it as a heinous crime, they see it as murder. Despite the religious differences between them and the monarch, of course the Irish being Catholic and Charles I being Protestant, that doesn't matter. Charles I is still their monarch and they still love him very much, and they're very upset with this as well. But guess what happens? Cromwell and the army ignore the protests from Scotland. Uh, Scottish Covenanters send down a person to negotiate and they just don't get to talk to Cromwell or any of the army officers. They're completely blocked off. Uh, the Irish, unsurprisingly, are ignored and the execution of Charles I takes place. Now, in this context, how the Scots and the Irish and the Royalist Welsh view this is that England's been taken over by a sort of um, minority of lunatics who, <laughs> you know, have taken it upon themselves to direct the constitution of the country. They don't see it as English Civil War historians would see it as a march towards democracy because, of course, they don't have a you know, they don't have a time machine. They can't go forward and see what this means retrospectively. They see it as a heinous crime of murder, which they weren't consulted. But they also see England being taken over by these lunatics who have abolished the House of Lords, who have purged the House of Commons, mm -hmm. and have executed the monarch. It's as if the whole English establishment has been, has been in a coup and these, this minority of Puritans is driving this constitutional change, not just for England and not just for the English people, who, by the way, are still very loyal to their monarch as well. And let's not forget, and that's why I'm stressing English army rather than the English people. Mm -hmm. This minority within the English army under Cromwell are driving this immense constitutional change without talking to anybody, consulting anyone, because they know what the reaction would be don't do it but they go ahead and they do it anyway and they found the english republic and it's it's interesting that you mentioned that point actually kirstine because all, all the way through and all the way through the kind of english civil war war of three kingdoms narrative that, that i've been brought up with it is that march towards democracy but have they how the hell can you march towards democracy if you're not giving anybody a vote or a say yeah absolutely Absolutely. So as I say, this is the Three Kingdoms view of it. When you widen it and you see how other people within the kingdoms viewed what was going on in England, you realise how crazy the whole situation and, and unusual it was. And also as well, what I have to emphasise is what the Irish and the Scots did immediately after hearing the news that the king had been executed was that they, they declared uh, Charles II as King of Britain and Ireland. Now, according to the English Civil War narrative, that's a very provocative act. Mm. But how dare they, at they attack the English Republic? That's an affront to Cromwell. How dare they do this? They're going to start another civil war. We've already had the first civil war, then the second civil war, and there's going to be a third civil war. How dare the Scots and the Irish do this? However, when you look at it from a Three Kingdoms perspective, of course, they were within their legal rights to do that because of the law of succession. Charles II is the heir to the throne of the Three Kingdoms. 
They are entitled to appoint Charles II as King of Britain and Ireland. Now, if you read English Republican propaganda after the execution, they'll say that uh, Charles II is King of Scots. No, he wasn't King of Scots. That's English Republican propaganda. And, it, and this is one of the things that really angers me, and I am going to get angry now because this Go is weird. Yes, basically, whenever you read books about this period and they focus on the English Civil War, or even, even when they do look at the Three Kingdoms, the amount of times people use the term King of Scots to describe Charles II really winds me up because he was crowned at Schoon as King of Britain and Ireland. That is why Cromwell had to come up to Scotland with lightning speed and conquer the country. It wasn't because they'd crowned him King of Scots, because if you think about it, if they'd crowned Charles II King of Scots, then Cromwell would have nothing to worry about. He'd go, yeah, well, it's okay, he can be King of Scotland, that's fine. But no, the Covenanters deliberately crowned Charles II as King of Britain and Ireland, and that was seen as a provocative act by the English Republic. And so that's why the conquest of Scotland and Ireland happened. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so you mentioned earlier when you were talking about John Pocock and that later view, particularly with uh, Westminster being... The, the mother of all parliaments. Can we not say that Westminster is the mother of all parliaments? In a, in a, in a sense, there is, the, the English parliament was very progressive and it was very forward thinking. And mm-hmm. in that sense, yes, you can say it, you know, many ways it was the mother of all parliaments because it became the British parliament and all the rest of it. However, I don't like that term, especially in the context of, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. And what I have to explain is that the mother of all parliaments term is a very Whiggish term. Again, it's a very Anglo-centric term. It's all very deterministic that we're marching towards democracy and somehow Westminster is is beacon of democracy. Because, of course, in the 19th century, there was a British parliament. There wasn't devolution. However, in the 17th century, what you have to recognise is that the English parliament was only one of three parliaments in the three kingdoms. And there were also assemblies as well, which I will get onto, which were extremely innovative and forward thinking. Now, Scotland had its own parliament and the Covenanters passed legislation in this parliament. 
had used this parliament for their own ends. In fact, they were the first ones to do that. And what happened was John Pym looked at what was going on in Scotland and he thought, oh, I can copy that. So between sort of 1640 and 1643, John Pym is looking towards Scotland and he's going, I like what the Covenanters are doing. It's very successful. I'll go and I'll go and copy it. So one of the famous acts from the Long Parliament is the Triennial Act, which means that the king has to call a parliament every three years. And that scene is again is a is a uh, a mark of progression towards our democracy. However, the Long Parliament and John Pym, they'd got that idea from the Scottish Parliament who had already passed the Triennial Act forcing Charles I to call the Scottish Parliament every three years. So you can see the connections between the kingdoms, how one then leads on to the other. You've also as well, you've got to, to not forget about Ireland. Ireland at this time has its own parliament. It's a well-established parliament. It's a well-functioning parliament. It's been there since medieval times. It's got its own uh, processes, committees, voting structures, elections. It's sort of like a, a, a Westminster, in, in essence, in Ireland. They, they, they're both very, very influenced by each other in terms of development. So it's a very forward-thinking. It's not anything less than the English parliament. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Now, lastly, to, to complicate matters, and this is why the Wars of Three Kingdoms can be complicated, is that in the early 1640s, what happened was, was that the uh, Catholic members of the Irish Parliament were marginalised and squeezed out of the Irish Parliament, and they were effectively disenfranchised. Now, the Irish Catholics, which con consisted of the majority of the population in Ireland, didn't sit around and sulk and go, woe is me. What are we going to do? I mean, all credit to them. They got off their backsides and they said, no, we can create our own assembly. So they created the Confederation of Kilkenny from scratch. And this was, it wasn't a sovereign parliament because it never had, the, the it was never bestowed sovereignty by the crown, but it was an assembly whereby Catholics in Ireland were represented, the elected members to this assembly they raised taxes like they would in any parliament in territory that was confederate held. They had diplomatic missions abroad to Rome, to other parts of Italy, France, whatever other Catholic countries. It was a very mature form of governance. And the reason why that came about was that Irish lawyers were determined to separate themselves from the Irish, the Ulster Irish, who'd committed you know, the 1641 rebellion, which was this massive rebellion in Ulster where thousands of people died. And they wanted to separate themselves from the Irish who'd committed those acts by saying, well, no, actually, we're, we're lawyers, we're a law-abiding country, we are uh, law-abiding people, but we have no represent representation because we've been booted out of the Irish Parliament. So what we're going to do is we're going to create our own representative. And it was very, very innovative. In fact, out of all the assemblies and parliaments during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, I would even suggest that the Confederation of Kilkenny was probably the most innovative and forward-thinking because it was calling for Catholic emancipation. And it was built from scratch. So you've got the Scottish Covenanters who basically hijack the Scottish Parliament from the Royalists and manipulate, that for it to, manipulate it for their own ends. 
You've got Pym's faction, the English Puritans, who hijacked the English Parliament. But whereas the Confederation of Kilkenny is built entirely from scratch, they organise an entire parliamentary-like system for Irish Catholics. And I, I think that, that, you know, that has to be applauded, really. And it's quite remarkable, really, what people can do when they really, really want it. If I can move us back to England, um, at least at the moment, and I'm going to use this term, and I think you'll understand why I'm using that term when I when I ask the question. But the the English Civil War is is often portrayed as a war between King Charles I and Oliver Cromwell uh, and his parliamentarians. If we take that from the Three Kingdoms perspective, how does that change? It changes because we step away from the Cromwell centric narrative. So, as I've said before, with with regards to the English Civil War narrative, it's very much you know, Charles I versus Cromwell, and then you have the rise of Cromwell through the Battle of Naseby, and he climbs the ranks and becomes Lord Protector in 1653. By viewing it from a Three Kingdoms perspective, not only do we get away from this Cromwell-centric narrative, but we realise that there are equally or even more talented individuals and more interesting individuals that we can discover. Um, I knew, I had a friend in the sealed knot who was an ex-para, when we had a discussion about Cromwell and he turned around and he said Cromwell was lucky. He, did, he mm-hmm. didn't rate Cromwell at all militarily, which I thought was very interesting considering that you know Cromwell's held up to be uh, the father of the British Army. And I thought that that's really interesting. But as I say, there, there are other figures that are just as clever. The only distinction between the figures that I'm about to discuss and Cromwell is the fact that Cromwell was the ultimate Victor of the wars of the three kingdoms. It doesn't mean that he has some somehow was the best military leader, or the, the the best political leader. So I will I will give two examples from Scotland and three from Ireland, so you can see how the perspective changes when we shift from the English Civil War and a Cromwell centric narrative over to the wars of the three kingdoms. So the first figure I'd like to discuss is Archibald Campbell, Marcus of Argyll. Now, Archibald Campbell and Marcus of Argyll is basically the leading league covenanter between 1637 and 1652. And Archibald Campbell was, obviously, he was was leader of Clan Campbell, and he owned lands, huge amount of lands in the West, West Highlands. And it was such an expansive territory that it was so important to the covenanters to control. And they were lucky that, obviously, he was on their side. He was a devout Presbyterian. He was very devout when it came to the covenants. His lands sort of looked across towards Ireland, but to the south, you could also get a boat to England, for example. So they're very strategic, large lands in in the West Highlands. And he is very Machiavellian. Some would say sleekit, which is a good Scottish term for meaning untrustworthy. He's a negotiator. He's, some would say, his enemies would say he was a political manipulator. He knew how to play people. He knew how to read situations. He was a good chess master in that sense. He knew how to get what he wanted and how to navigate structures and people to get what he needed done. Now, he's a person that I admire. His enemies, as I say, were called Sleekit and Machiavellian and untrustworthy, but he was a survivor. 
And his main, his main ambition was to keep his land, Campbell lands intact from being uh, pulled apart by Clan Donald, who wanted to take uh, the West Highlands back for themselves. Because, of course, Clan Donald used to be the lords of the Isles, and then they gradually got replaced by the Campbells. So Clan Donald wants to take all this Campbell land back for themselves. So Argyll occupies this preeminent position in the Covenanters. Um, he's prominent in the Scottish Parliament. He's prominent with regards to the religious works. You cannot write a history of the Scottish Covenanters without talking about the Marcus of Argyle. He's that that prominent. Um, in the same way as you can't write a history of the English Puritan movement in the Wars Three Kingdoms without talking about Oliver Cromwell. He's, a, he's the same stature. He's a massive figure in the Wars <clears throat> of the Three Kingdoms. He he is he was so important that Cromwell's men, when they came up to conquer Scotland, instead of being forceful with him or putting any pressure on him with militarily, they decided to negotiate with him. And that just shows you the weight of command that this man had throughout Scotland. They didn't want to upset him. So they sat down and they negotiated with him for about 18 months. And even after the negotiations, the, the English army didn't trust him at all because he had this reputation of being two-faced and being a bit sleek. So he kept them on their toes. So he's a very, very interesting character. Um, the next character I would like to discuss is Alistair McCullough. Now, I'm a big fan of Alistair McCullough. He's probably one, He's probably the best British general you've never heard of. Experts in the Wall Street Kingdoms will know who, exactly who I'm talking about. Um, this man was ruthless. This man was incredible, really. I mean, he's gone down in Gaelic folklore as this consummate Highland warrior. He's not the sort of man you'd want to mess with. And there's this story where he captures one of his enemies. And, you know, he, he gives his enemy a choice. He says, well, you can either die by drowning or I can hang you. And, he's, and his enemy says to him, yeah, but Alistair, that's not a choice. He, he, that, that's, you're not giving me a choice here. And so then Alistair allegedly takes his sword out and, like the film Highlander, slices the guy's head off with one blow. I mean, a good day at the office for Alistair McCullough is a pile of dead Campbells all over the battlefield. This guy terrified the Covenanters. He had such a fearsome reputation. He's such an interesting character. But unfortunately, he died in Ireland in 1647, either during battle or after the battle. There's, there's conflicting stories as to how he met his end. He's a very, very interesting character, and he's the inventor of something called the Highland Charge. Uh, the Highland Charge, um, for those of you who've watched Outlander, you'll know what the Highland Charge is. You've seen the, the, the film of Culloden with all the Highlanders running towards the English army, screaming. And even after the British army integrated the Highland regiments into the military structures, the Highland Charge sort of remained as a tactic as such. But this Highland Charge as well had a mythology about it. It was so feared and it consolidated his reputation as this fearsome warrior. He's still considered a very consummate warrior in Gaelic circles, both in Ireland where he fought and also in Scotland where he fought. In fact, Scottish band Cavrochaley 
uh, sing this walking song, which is a tribute to Alistair McCullough called Alistair McCullough Castor. And I think I've provided a link to Paul here if you want to have a listen. And then there's another one by the Irish band Clannad. And uh, again, it's it's the Irish version of the same song, Alistair McCullough. And the fact that this man has a ballad in the Irish language and in the Scottish Gaelic tells you still to what extent this man is held in high regard. You know, he was considered uh, in many ways uh, a warrior that was was there to protect the, the Gaelic culture from being sort of anglicised, either from the Campbells or from other places such as the English Parliament. He was seen as the stalwart against anglicisation or against civilization. dare I use that word. He was this ferocious warrior you just didn't want to mess with. The next sort of character I'd like to talk about is Owen O'Neill, who it was a, he was an Irish military general and he was a very experienced uh, military general. He probably had more experience than Cromwell, that's for sure. He served in the he served for Spain, fighting the Dutch for years, and then he saw that his own country, Ireland, was in trouble with the civil wars and didn't like the thought of a Scottish army under the Campbells coming into Ulster and also the English Parliament coming in trying to sort of anglicise or Protestantize Catholic Ireland. So he decided to come back. He decided to fight them. He had a major military success at the Battle of Benbarb. He crushed both Scottish and English forces at that battle. It was a major, major victory. But unfortunately, uh, he was very quarrelsome. He fell out with the Confederation of Kilkenny, who were effectively his bosses. They gave him his military commission. He fell out with them and he became increasingly isolated. And what happened was his major backer, Minuccini, who was the, the clerical envoy from Rome to uh, the Confederacy, went away by 1649 and he was left abandoned. And so he then thought, well, I'm really angry with the Confederacy, so what am I going to do? Now, at that time, the English Parliament was starting to make inroads into Ireland and General George Monk was wanting to make progress, but he had problems in getting supplies. But he knew that O'Neill had supplies. So he cozied up to O'Neill and said, well, you know, I know you've fallen out with the Confederacy, but I can do you a deal. You and me, we could have a truce and could have an alliance and you could give me your supplies and I'll give you a pat on the back and I'll say nice things to you, things about you to the English Parliament. And so O'Neill thought about it. And yes, there was something signed. There was an agreement signed or a truce. Unfortunately, the English Parliament wasn't too happy with this, as you can imagine. This man is Irish Catholic. He fought for the Confederacy. He was a very good general, but, you know, it turns their stomach. Likewise, the Confederation of Kilkenny finds out about this, not happy about it at all. So he ends up isolated again, and then he ends up fighting against Cromwell when Cromwell invades. So he does actually, he does does go back to the Confederation or the Royalist forces and fights against Cromwell. But that just shows you how fragile and unexpected some alliances in the Civil War or the Wars of the Three Kingdoms can be. Here you have an Irish Catholic general who's fought for the Confederation for the majority of the war, who then decides, well, actually, I can strike a deal and an agreement with 
with one of the English parliamentary commanders, George Monk. I mean, that's another thing I like about the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. There's lots of unexpected things that are thrown up that, that can be surprises. And that's one of them. Uh, last two figures I'd like to discuss are Patrick Darcy and Richard Martin. Now, these are sort of uh, Irish Catholic lawyers. They go to London for their legal education as, as they were allowed to. But because they were Catholics, there were a lot of barriers in their way claiming the profession is, is back then, back in 17th century, because obviously by the 17th century, if you were a Catholic, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. There were a lot of barriers in your way to being employed, etc. So they come back to Ireland and they become respected and renowned lawyers. And so the war happens and they're some of the legal brains behind the construction of the Confederation and the Kilkenny. They're the, the, the sort of legal brains behind the whole outfit. They're the ones that tell the Confederation, yes, you can do this legally or no, you can't. And what they, what's interesting about this pair is that they're actually related by, by blood ties. Similarly to the Covenanters, you'll find if you go into the Covenanters, you'll find that they're all intermarried as well. And they all have the same religion. It's the same with the Confederates, the same with the English Palantirians. There's a lot of familial networks and there's a lot of religious networks. So they're very, very clever lawyers and they know what they're doing. They know what's legal in Ireland. They know what's not legal in Ireland. They know the law and the constitution back to front. They know what they can get away with and they know what they can't. Very, very clever people. And I find them really, really interesting. And as I say, because the Confederation was built from scratch, I find what these men did and other men like them, and there were more men like this who staffed the Confederation of Kilkenny, extremely fascinating indeed. Okay, right. Now, just to possibly round off with what I might think could be your angriest question and response here, I'm going to come right out with it, okay? You're an academic, I'm a public historian, and... I suppose the basic question is, English Civil War, War of Three Kingdoms, happy with both terms. Why should anybody care which one we use? Well, I'm, I'm not, as I say, I'm, I'm not adverse to people using the English Civil War if it's used in the right context. So if you want to use the English Civil War, go ahead, use the English Civil War, that's fine. If you're referring to England between 1642 and 1649 and the Royalists, and English Planetarians. I don't have a problem with that at all, but please, please, please do not use the term if you're going to discuss the Prayer Book Rights in Edinburgh in 1637 or Irish Royalists in the Army of Charles I. You'd be better using the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. And why should you care? I mean, this is history. It happened in the past. What's the big deal? Well, to be honest with you, if you think about the current political situation, and I'm not going to go on about it too much, but we are living in a fractured union. We have the SNP in Scotland. We have recently had Sinn Féin do the unthinkable in Northern Ireland, and they've succeeded. And then you have Wales with its assembly pulling away from the Tories as well. And then you have the English Parliament with the Tories. We are living in a fractured union with four distinct nations, similarly to the, the three Stuart kingdoms. So why should it matter? Well, for me, it does matter. And it matters because perhaps it can help us 
understand what's going on in this country today. Perhaps it can help us understand where this country is going constitutionally. If you're interested in current politics, maybe you would be interested in the wars of the three kingdoms as well, because there is a lot that you can learn from it by looking at the period and by looking at uh, the three Stuart kingdoms as a whole. Thank you. That has given me uh, actually a load to think about. And, and like you're right, where I wouldn't say we're in unprecedented times because we're in times that are almost identical <laughs> to the 17th century, except that we haven't got muskets, or at least some of us haven't got muskets. Um, but yeah, that's given me a, a mass load to think about and a whole, you know, three extra dimensions into the conflict that I was taught about at school. So thank you very much for bringing 400 years of rage across the border. Well, thank you for having me. You are welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about Kirstein's work, then you can start by reading the excellent book, uh, The Solemn League and Covenant of the Three Kingdoms and Cromwellian Union, 1643 to 1663. Uh, You can purchase that uh, from Routledge's website, and we will put a link into the show notes. And you can follow her on Twitter at KirsteinMM. We will put links to those songs in the show notes as well. So thank you very much once again for coming on, Kirsteen. Thank you very much indeed for having me. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavle and you can follow Kyle at Kyle G History, where you can see lots of photos of Crete. Uh, if you've enjoyed our work, please subscribe to us on Patreon. It's your £5 per month will get you early episodes and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening and stay angry. Bye bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.